the life of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, the Meccan period, by Imam Anwar al-Awlaqi. Alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam, salima kathira, session four. Uh, the situation in, in Arabia and the world was very desperate and uh, for more information in that regard uh, you could refer to an excellent book uh, written by Sheikh Abul Hassan Nadawi called Mada Khasr Al-Alam Bin Hatat Al-Muslimin What Has the World Lost by the Downfall of the Muslims uh, He has a whole chapter in his book talking about the situation in the world uh, at the time of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam uh, over here we just have situation in Arabia, but over there he talks about the situation in the Persian Empire, China, India, Roman Empire, all around the world. And it was in a very desperate state. It needed the light of prophethood. It wasn't entirely evil. People around the world still retained some good qualities. And Al-Buti, he talks about some of the good qualities that the non-believers of the Arabs had in the time of Muhammad sallallahu And he mentions a few examples like generosity and hospitality, uh, fulfilling of a pledge, pride and denial of shame and injustice, firm will and determination, perseverance and uh, deliberateness, pure and simple uh, life. So these are some aspects that were taken advantage of by Islam. You see, the Sahaba عنهم, because they held these qualities, they were successful in spreading the religion. Their generosity and hospitality made them welcome in the nations they would go to. I mean, people around the world would welcome the Sahaba. They weren't like a, a despised occupier. The Sahaba were welcomed in the lands they went to. The people saw them as a liberating army that would free them from slavery and uh, the servitude that they were going through. This held true, for example, when it came to the people of Egypt and the people of Syria who were ruled by the Romans. They didn't see the army that is coming in as displacing another occupying army. No, they saw them as people who are liberating them. And then there was something among the Sahaba they didn't care for power and authority in many places they would go they would train among the local people leadership and then they would hand it over to them uh, the Sahaba were out to call people to Islam not to rip their resources like we had in the colonial era of Europe and the imperial powers of Europe France, Britain, Italy Holland I mean, they went all over the world. These European powers went all over the world, taking advantage of the people and stripping them of their wealth. That wasn't the case with the armies of the Sahaba. Their fulfillment of pledges, their firmness and determination, they were strong. You could count on them. They were powerful. When they gave a world word, they would stick to it. So these were qualities that were very important for da'wah. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose that particular area to host the last message. I mean, it wasn't a haphazard thing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose Mecca to be the birthplace of Rasulullah sallallahu The people in that area at that time had qualities which made them the fittest to carry the message. And they pledged their lives for it. And they gave their lives, they sacrificed everything for Islam. Anyway, we talked last time about the story of the elephant, Al-Fil. Rasulullah was born in Am Al-Fil. He was born in the year in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed the army of Abraha. There are many stories mentioned referring to the birth of Rasulullah miracles that happened. And uh, you could go into other books to study these stories. We're not going to go through them for the simple reason that I'm trying to stick to a certain standard of narration. And these stories are usually weak. Rasulullah when his mother Amina was pregnant, Abdullah, his father, was on a journey 
to Asham. But he ended up dying close to Medina. And he was buried there. So he died before the birth of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was born and his mother saw a light that is coming out of her. And this light is reaching towards Asham. And that was interpreted as the light of the message of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam reaching to the world. Rasulullah sallallahu says about his lineage there is a few ahadith that will state first of all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Allahu a'lamu haythu yaj'alu risalata Allah knows best where to place his prophethood so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose the best to be his messenger Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam now Imam Ahmad narrates a hadith that people were talking different things about Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa For example, they said that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was like a green tree grown in a desert. What they were trying to say is that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was the only good person among his clan. So Ibn Abbas says certain things the people were saying reached the messenger of Allah. So he mounted the pulpit and asked, Who am I? They replied and said, you are the messenger of Allah. He replied, I am Muhammad bin Abdullah bin Abdul Muttalib, which means son. I am Muhammad, son of Abdullah, son of Abdul Muttalib. Allah devised the creation and made me part of his best creatures. He made them all into two groups, placing me in the better of them. He created the tribes and placed me in the best, subdivided them into clans and placed me in the best one. I am the best of you, both in clan and in spirit. Rasulullah is saying that I am not a good person among a group of evil people. He said, I am the best, but I am also from among the best. So my clan and my tribe are the most noble. Rasulullah also says, Verily Allah granted eminence to Kinana from amongst the descendants of Ismail, and He granted eminence to the Quraysh from among Kinana, and He granted eminence to the Bani Hashim among Quraysh, and He granted me eminence from the tribe of Banu Hashim. So Rasulullah was the greatest from among Banu Hashim, and Banu Hashim were the most noble among Quraysh, and Quraysh were the most noble among Kinana, and Kinana was the most noble of the descendants of Ismail. Now, Rasulullah says in another hadith, I was the product of true marriage, not fornication, from Adam right on up to when my father and my mother had me. I was not at all tainted by the fornication of Jahiliyyah. In the time of Jahiliyyah, because of the corruption and lewdness that occurs when people are far away from the true message, their hearts become perverted and a lot of immoral acts occur among the people. Rasulullah is saying, even though part of my ancestry lived in those eras, in those times, but I was a product of marriage all the way up to Adam. So there isn't any of my ancestors who had a relationship of zina. It is all through marriage all the way to Adam السلام, and that is something that Allah has granted to Muhammad وسلم. It was all through true marriage. I hope the meaning of this is clear. That the lineage of Rasulullah from him all the way up to Adam السلام, was a product of marriage. The famous names of Muhammad وسلم, that we know are Muhammad and Ahmed. But he has some additional names. And we'll talk about the meanings of these names. The name that was given to him by his parents was Muhammad وسلم. And who was the one who named him Muhammad? Who was it? His grandfather. Abdul Muttalib is the one who named him Muhammad now the name Muhammad means to be eternally praised. 
For he, sallallahu alayhi wa obliges praise from people for his characteristics, his sayings, his actions, and he is the embodiment of praise, and he is therefore Muhammad. So Muhammad means a person who draws praise. Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi as we mentioned earlier, is praised eternally. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has fulfilled the meaning of his name. There is no human being that ever lived in history who was praised like Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa He is praised day and night. Ahmad, the name Ahmad comes from the same root. See, Muhammad and Ahmad come from the root Hamd. And what does Hamd mean? Praise. When you say Alhamdulillah, praise be to Allah. So both the name Muhammad and Ahmad are derived from the same root. Muhammad means a person who draws praise, so he is praised. Ahmad means that he praises Allah. So Rasulullah is the most among us in praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So there is no person that ever lived who praises Allah Azza wa Jal like Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So here you have two meanings. Muhammad means he is the most praised. Ahmad, he praises Allah the most. These are the two famous names of Muhammad But he has also told us some of his other names, and these are from a hadith. Uh, one of his na- other names is Al-Hashir. Al-Hashir means the gatherer to whom humanity will be resurrected in his wake. The Prophet is the first to be resurrected among the creation, then mankind will be resurrected following him. So the first person to be resurrected will be Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and then people will come after that. So he is the first on the day of judgment. Al-Muqaffi, the successor. For he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the last of the prophets and messengers, and there shall be none succeeding him. So Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the last. Al-Muqaffi is the last. Al-Mahi. Uh, the eraser that erases and eradicates kufr. There is no prophet that will succeed in eliminating kufr entirely except Muhammad Now that mission has not been fulfilled yet because his ummah are still carrying on that mission. But the eventual victory of Islam, which will be the culmination of human history, will be a moment of time when the whole world will be Muslim. And that will be carried on by the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu under the leadership of Isa salam. Jesus, may peace be upon him. So Muhammad Sallallahu is the one who will be successful in eradicating, erasing kufr from the face of the earth. So he is called Al-Mahi. He will erase and eradicate kufr. Uh, one of his other names is Nabiul Malhamah. The prophet of the fierce battle. Now, Malhama is a fierce battle and it's also a series of battles. Rasulullah was named the prophet of Al Malhama, the prophet of the fierce battles. One can give different interpretations to that. One meaning is that his ummah are the greatest in terms of jihad. There is no ummah that have fought jihad like the ummah of Muhammad. That's one meaning. Another meaning that could be drawn from this name of Rasulullah that the future of humanity after Muhammad will be that of very fierce battles. And we have seen examples of that in World War I and World War II. History is divided into stages. We are now living in the stage of Muhammad which extends until the Day of Judgment. So events that are happening now, even though they might not be done by Muslims, but we are still living in the era of Muhammad Sallallahu And everyone living on the face of the earth is part of the Ummah of Muhammad Sallallahu in the sense that he is their prophet. Now whether they accept it or not is a different question. But they are part of his Ummah. And they will come on the Day of Judgment and they will be asked about who? They won't be asked about Isa. They won't be asked about Musa. They will be asked about Muhammad Sallallahu Did you follow him or not? Rasulullah was nursed initially by his mother and Umm Ayman, whose name is Barakah. And Umm Ayman is an Abyssinian woman who lived in Mecca. She later on became Muslim. 
And Rasulullah married her to his emancipated slave, Zayd bin Haritha. Zayd bin Haritha was a slave, and Rasulullah freed him, and he married him to Umm Ayman. So she also nursed him. It was a tradition among the urban Arabs to send their children to grow up in the desert. They used to believe that the desert is more pure and is a cleaner environment and is healthier for them to grow in. They also believed that this will strengthen their character because of the harshness. It will make them stronger people. So they would send their children out of the cities to live in the desert. And that happened with Rasulullah He was brought up in the land of Banu Sa'd. Halima Sa'diyah narrates to us this story. She says that she came with her friends to Mecca so that they could take with them children to nurse. And for them, this was something that they were paid for. So you would have these Bedouin women come into Mecca and they would try to adopt or nurse some children. Halima Sa'diyah came into Mecca and she said that that particular year was a year of famine, so they were very poor. Now, she and her friends, they went around the houses of Mecca uh, searching for children who need to be nursed. She said that Muhammad وسلم, was presented to each and every one of them and they all declined to accept him. They all refused to accept Muhammad Sallallahu Why? Because he was an orphan. And they were saying, what good is an orphan? Who will pay us if his father is dead? So they wouldn't agree on a certain amount of money. What they would do is they would nurse the child and then they will be given some financial compensation as a gift. Since Muhammad Sallallahu was an orphan, no one accepted him because he doesn't have a father to pay for him. And they said his mother wouldn't really be able to pay as much. So they all declined to accept Muhammad Sallallahu Halima says at the end of the day, all of my friends were going back to their camps with children except myself. I found no one to take with me. So at night I told my husband, I'm going to go next day in the morning and accept that child called Muhammad since we have no one else. I'm not going to go back home empty-handed. She said my husband agreed. So I went next day in the morning and I went to Muhammad's mother, Aminah bin Tuhab. And I said that I accept to take your child. Halima says that the night before, we couldn't get any sleep because our camel was not providing any milk and because of the famine and the hunger, I wasn't able to provide my own child with milk. So he would cry throughout the night and keep us awake. That was their situation, very poor. Halima says that as soon as I picked up Muhammad and took him back to my camp, my breast immediately welcomed him and provided him with all the milk that he needed until he was satisfied. And the milk was enough for my son. And that was the first night that we were able to get a full night of sleep because my son wasn't able to sleep for quite a few nights. So immediately the barakah of Muhammad was apparent. She said, and then my husband went out to milk the camel and it was providing so much milk that my husband came back and said, Oh Halima, you have brought us a blessed soul. There is something going on. All of this blessing is showering us since you brought this young child in our house. So now they're still camping uh, in Mecca and they're ready now to go back to the desert. Halima said that when we were coming to Mecca, I was riding a donkey that was so old and weak, it was slowing down the whole group, and it was annoying everybody else. 
She said that this donkey was old and weak. You know, sometimes you'd have a donkey, rather than going straight, it would go sideways. Very tired and disoriented. She said when we were going back, my donkey was the fastest among the group. She said, my friends were asking me, is this the same animal you brought with you when we came to Mecca? She said, yes. They said, by Allah, something is going on. Now they went back to their land. Halima said, me and my husband would send out our goats to graze. They would come back full. And we would milk them whenever we want. While everybody else in our tribe, their animals would be hungry without any milk. Now people are starting to complain to the shepherds, telling them, why don't you go and graze the animals the same place where Halima is grazing hers? She said, so they would take their animals after us, following us to the same place, yet ours would come back full and theirs would come back empty. And she said, the child was growing up and we were seeing the blessings of Allah on all of us because of him. She says, there's a statement here, and God went on blessing us this way and we recognized it. Then he reached two years of age. He was already growing up a very fine boy, not like the other children. I swear that by the age of two, he was a sturdy boy so we took him to his mother when he was two years old. Now it's time for them to return the child. That's it. And subhanAllah, it seems that uh, the Arabs of Mecca learned that the city is not a very healthy environment. Especially with Mecca. Because it receives a lot of visitors from all over Arabia. You know, they could bring with them different diseases and uh, germs into town. But the desert is very pure. The desert is hot and dry. And that makes it an unsuitable environment for the growth of bacteria. And it would be a very healthy uh, place to be. Uh, so now at the age of two, it was time for them to return. Muhammad sallallahu to his mother. They went to Mecca. They told Amina, we want to keep Muhammad with us. You know, it's not good for him to be in Mecca and it might be dangerous. They were bringing up all of these excuses. They wanted to keep Muhammad They loved him so much. They knew that he is blessed. They wanted to keep him and they kept on trying and trying and trying until Amina agreed. Subhanallah, that was the blessing of Allah following Muhammad She eventually agreed. So they took him back with them. One day Muhammad was playing with his foster brother. So his foster brother came in rushing and said, my brother from Quraysh. They said, what happened to him? He said, two men dressed in white came down and knocked him to the ground and then they opened up his abdomen. So Halima said, me and his father went rushing and we came to see Muhammad Wasallam. His color was pale and we asked him what happened. He said, two men came and they opened my chest and they took out something from it. Halima, she loved Muhammad so much and she didn't want anything to harm him. Plus, she didn't want anything bad to happen to him when he is with her. So she rushed back to Mecca and went to Amina and said, here is Muhammad, you can now have him. We have fulfilled our responsibility. Amina said, how come you're bringing him back when you are so interested in keeping him? They said nothing. She insisted. She said, tell me what happened. You were so insistent on keeping him and now you want to bring him back. What happened? Halima said she kept on questioning us until we eventually told her. Amina responded and said, are you afraid for him that Satan might hurt him? By Allah, that will not happen. When I was pregnant with him, it was the lightest pregnancy. And when I delivered him, his birth was unlike any other child. And when he came out, I have seen light that was reaching to a sham. 
So the protection of Allah is with him, and I am sure that he will have a great future. So now Muhammad sallallahu was back with his mother. His mother passed away when he was at the age of six. So now he lost his father and mother. He was adopted by his grandfather Abdul Muttalib, who raised him up. And Abdul Muttalib passed away when Muhammad ﷺ was at the age of eight. And now Muhammad ﷺ was taken care of by his uncle Abu Talib, who protected him and helped him and supported him for the next 40 years in the life of Muhammad ﷺ. This is the early age the early years of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi We'll talk about a few events here and there that happened before prophethood. We're not going to spend much time on the pre-prophethood era, but we'll talk about the important events that happened. Rasulullah sallallahu was protected by Allah. He would not commit sins which were usual and normal amongst his people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was keeping him away from these sins. Rasulullah narrates an example of this. Uh, he says that I was a shepherd, and one day I told my friend who was also a shepherd with me, I told him, uh, tonight I want to go in to Mecca to attend the parties my peers attend. Rasulullah was a young man at the time, and all of his friends would attend parties, except he. He was the only one who would not join them in these parties. So Rasulullah said one day, I wanted to go and see what they were doing. So I told my friend to take care of my flock until I come back. He agreed. Rasulullah said, I went into Mecca and I arrived at the place where they were having this party. And Rasulullah said, as soon as I was hearing the music, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala struck my ears, so I fell down asleep. By the time I woke up, the party was over. He said, the next day, I decided to attend another party. Rasulullah said, I went into Mecca, same arrangement with my friend. I went into Mecca, and as soon as I reached the place and I was hearing the music, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala struck my ears again, and I fell down asleep. And I woke up after the party is over, and I realized that this is a sign to me from Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving me a sign. We have another example that was mentioned by Zayd ibn Haritha. Zayd ibn Haritha, who was the servant of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa Zayd, he narrates, he says, there was a brass idol called Isaf and Na'ilah, uh, which the polytheists would touch as they performed tawaf. The Messenger of Allah said, don't touch it. So, you had Isaf and Na'ila, and the people of Quraysh, when they would uh, make Hajj or Umrah, they would touch these two idols. It was part of their worship. Rasulullah told Zayd, don't touch them. Now, how did Rasulullah know that he wasn't supposed to touch the idols? It was Hidayah coming from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, as we went round again, I told myself I would touch it to see what would happen. When I did so, the Messenger of Allah asked me, were you not forbidden to do that? Zayd then stated that the Messenger of Allah never saluted an idol right up to when Allah the Almighty honored him and he gave him the revelation. Rasulullah never made sujood to an idol, never touched the idols in the sense of worship, and Rasulullah had a natural dislike to idol worshipping. And he even applied those rules on his family. Zayd ibn Haratha, who is his servant, Rasulullah told him, don't involve in touching these idols. And that's why Ali ibn Abi Talib, he never worshipped an idol. Why? Because he was raised up in the house of who? In the house of Rasulullah When Abu Talib was poor, 
Rasulullah offered to take care of his son Ali ibn Abi Talib. So Ali ibn Abi Talib was raised up by Rasulullah And Ali ibn Talib therefore never made sujood to an idol. He never worshipped idols because he was brought up in the house of the Messenger of Allah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was guiding him towards some of the ibadat that nobody else knew about. Among the people of Quraysh, during Hajj, they would be the only people not to participate in Arafah. So you have different rituals of Hajj. You have Tawaf around al Kaaba. You have Sa'i between Al-Safa and Marwa. You have standing in Arafah. You have camping in Mina. The people of Quraysh would participate in all of these rituals with the exception of Arafah. Why? Because Arafah is considered out of Al-Haram. Arafah is outside the boundaries of the sacred place, Al-Haram. Arafah is outside. So all of the Arabs would go to Arafah in Hajj with the exception of the people of Quraysh. They, they would say, we are the dwellers of Al-Haram. How can we go outside of Al-Haram? That was their logic. If we are part of Al-Haram, we are the people of Mecca, how can we get out of the boundaries of Mecca? So they would stop at the borders with Arafah. Al-Mut'am bin Jubair, he lost his camel. And he went to look for it. And he ended up searching for his camel in Arafah. To his amazement, who does he find there? Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa Al-Jubair said, isn't he from among the people of Quraysh? What is he doing in Arafah? But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was guiding Muhammad sallallahu by fitrah to go to Arafah during the time of Hajj. The first profession for Rasulullah sallallahu was shepherding. That's the first thing he did. And in Bukhari, Rasulullah says, Allah has not sent a prophet that was not a shepherd. His companions then asked, and you? He said, yes, I used to herd sheep with compensation from the people of Mecca. Every prophet has been a shepherd. It's striking that you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has trained all of his anbiya by going through this line of work, being a shepherd. What are the lessons that we can learn from Anbiya being shepherds? There are lessons to be learned from them being shepherds, and there are lessons to be learned from them being shepherds of specifically sheep. Because that's what the hadith states. It didn't just make an unqualified statement that they were shepherds. It states that they were shepherds of sheep. Actually, the hadith is Ra'al Ghanam, and Ghanam could mean either sheep or goats. The same word in Arabic refers to both. The most important lesson to learn from that, we're talking about lessons that the Anbiya learned from being shepherds. The most important lesson that they learn, the most important training that they get from being shepherds is responsibility. And Rasulullah says in the hadith, كُلُّكُمْ رَاعٍ وَكُلُّكُمْ مَسْؤُولٌ عَنْ You are all shepherds, and you are all responsible for your herd. And then he said that the imam is responsible for his people, imam meaning the, the leader of the Muslims. The man is responsible for his household, the woman is responsible, everyone is responsible. So the first lesson to learn from being a shepherd is responsibility. You know a shepherd usually is working for somebody else who owns the flock. So they're hired by someone else. So they have to report to a higher authority. They have to report to someone else. Now a shepherd cannot go back to the owner and say, well, I'm sorry I lost one sheep because that sheep happened to be stupid. It doesn't matter what the sheep do. You are responsible. Anything that happens to this flock, even if the sheep was wrong, you are responsible for it. And we can't go back and say, well, the sheep was wrong. It's not my fault. No, it's your fault. So they learn to be responsible for a herd, 
even if the herd is not responsible for itself. They still feel that they are going to be held accountable for the flock, regardless of whether the flock is intelligent or not, whether they are united or not, whether they obey or not. I am accountable for that. So it's a very important lesson for the leader. You are responsible for your herd. And the Anbiya of Allah, one day, are going to be accountable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for their people. So that's the first lesson they learn, being responsible. Second lesson, it teaches them patience. Taking out sheep to graves, they take their time, they're slow, and you have to wait. You have to be patient. They might end up fighting with each other. They might end up playing with each other. You have to wait. You have to be patient. And you can't really tell them, come on guys, finish up. We have to leave. You can't. They're going to take their time. And you have to sit there waiting. You see shepherds sometimes when their sheep are grazing, they would just sit on a rock and wait until the sheep have their fill. So it teaches patience. And you're doing this day in and day out, on a daily basis. You leave in the morning, you come back at sunset. And you have to be patient with these animals. You have to bear with them. Even if you're not communicating well with them, and if they're not communicating well with you, you still have to be patient and bear with them. So the Anbiya learn to be very, very patient with their people. I mean, look at what Musa went through with Bani Israel. Unbearable. But Musa had a training in shepherding longer than maybe any other prophet. He was a shepherd for 10 years. When he left Egypt and he got married to the daughter of Shu'aib, what did the father, uh, what did his father-in-law tell him? You work for me 8 years or 10. So the contract was 8 years. And then he told him, and if you want to add 2 years to that, it's a favor that you would do me. Now the ayah in Qur'an does not state whether Musa worked for 8 or 10. Rasulullah wanted to know. So he asked Jibreel. He said, how long did Musa work? Jibreel told him, Atamul ajalaini wa akmalha. He worked the most complete and perfect term. In other words, 10 years. Being a Nabi of Allah, he's going to do the best job. So he, even though the contract stated 8 years, he did 10. Musa went through a lot. But he was patient. He was patient with his people. Nuh alayhi salam, 950 years in da'wah. And he was still patient with his people. He tried every different way. Da'utuhum laylan wa nahara, sirran wa jihara. I tried publicly and privately. I tried at night and daytime. I tried every way and they were rejecting my message. Imagine doing the same thing. Meeting the same people who are turning you down for 950 years. The third lesson, protection. The shepherd protects the flock. Now, there are various dangers, seen or unseen. You have wolves, you have other beasts, and then you have diseases. All of this, the shepherd needs to be on top of it all and needs to consistently make sure that no dangers are affecting the flock. And the Anbiya of Allah are very protective of their people. They try to protect them from physical and psychological dangers. In Medina, at night, suddenly a commotion was heard. So some of the Sahaba immediately picked up their weapons and on their horses and racing towards the source of the sound. They went there, and to their amazement, they found Rasulullah already on his way back, telling them, He told them everything is fine. So even though the Sahaba were so fast and swift in getting there, Rasulullah was already there before them. And he checked it out, made sure that it's fine, and came back. Rasulullah would warn them from shaitan, would warn them from every... Rasulullah has not left any danger that could afflict us without warning us. Everything. He even talked about events in the future, at Dajjal. He told the Sahaba, he said, 
I have warned you about the Dajjal like no other prophet has warned his people. Meaning I have given you more details than anybody else. If he comes out while I am among you, I will take care of that. If he comes out after I pass away, then everyone is responsible for their own protection. So that's another lesson the Anbiya learned from being shepherds. A fourth lesson. These animals are closer to earth and their sight is very limited. Sheep can only see so far. Any small obstacle would block their view. But a human being standing up tall has a longer view. And from that vantage point can see danger while it's approaching. The sheep cannot. Because the shepherd is standing up and staring in every direction, the first to notice danger would be the shepherd. And the shepherd therefore would give an advance warning to the flock. So you'd have this flock of sheep grazing around uh, happily and they don't know that there's some danger a few feet away. But because of their short sightedness, they cannot see it. While the shepherd can. And that is the case with the Anbiya. They sense and they detect the danger before it approaches us. And they have the clearest vision. And they have the longest view. And they have a vantage point that none of us has. And they know what is good for us. Rasulullah says, the analogy of me and you is like someone sitting next to a fire at night. When you have a fire at night, what happens? It would attract insects. If you have a lamp outside of your house and it's nighttime, you'd have all of these moths flying around it. They're attracted by any source of light. Now if they see fire, they think it is light, not knowing that it will burn them. So all of these moths and flying insects are attracted to the fire thinking it's light and they get there and they burn. You just hear and sound what you're hearing is really an insect exploding. Just burning alive. Rasulullah says, that's the analogy of me and you. I'm like somebody standing next to this fire and you are attracted to it and you're jumping in it while I'm grabbing you by your clothes, dragging you away and you are forcing yourselves into it. I'm holding you, dragging you by your clothes and you are releasing yourself from me jumping into the fire. He knows that it's fire, we don't. He sees the danger, we don't. Rasulullah was inviting the people to Jannah and they are forcing themselves to the path of hellfire. So the ra'i, the shepherd, sees the danger and realizes it and is warning, giving very strong warnings to the flock. I mean, if you have in front of you, if you see a blind man walking and in front of this man is a deep trench and uh, this man is blind he cannot see so within a few steps he's going to fall in that trench and he might kill himself in that situation what would your response be you would jump up and scream and give that man immediate warning be careful you're not going to sit there think about it and try to think about some very polite and unpleasant words that you could deliver to this man. You're going to scream to the top of your voice and tell him, be careful. And that's what the NBA were doing. They were giving a very plain, straightforward warning. Not because they lacking sensitivity and they are attempting to hurt the feelings of others. No, because they want to save the other people. Because they really cared about them. And the Ra'i might hit some of the animals not because he wants to hurt them, but because he wants to save them. So whenever we see a Nabi of Allah standing up and giving a, what seems to be a very uh, direct and staunch warning, it is because they care about their people. When Rasulullah stood on the member and said, It is reported that Rasulullah stood on the pulpit in the masjid and told the people, I am warning you hellfire. And his voice was going up and up and up. The narrator of the hadith said that the people in the marketplace 
could hear Rasulullah sallallahu in the masjid. And he was repeating the same thing again and again. I'm warning you hellfire. So they have a long view. Number five, simplicity. A shepherd is living a very simple life. You cannot have all of the accessories of life with you in the desert. You cannot take your Mercedes-Benz car and your refrigerator with all of the different fruits and types of food and you have a couch with you in the desert and you have a TV and a remote control. You can't have that in the desert. In the desert, all what you can carry with you is, is a few items and that's it. You have to give up all of the things you have. Even, even if you're a wealthy person, you can't have these things with you out there when you're shepherding. You can't have it. You're going out in the desert, walking with these animals, you have to be light. So it teaches them to lead a simple life. A shepherd is eating very simple food, is having very simple accommodations. It teaches them simplicity. They become very simple. And it teaches them uh, to get accustomed to different environments. It could be raining, you still have to feed the animals. It could be cold, hot, windy, all different climates. A shepherd has to deal with that. And the shepherd is the last to take cover. You're responsible for these animals, you have to take them in, you have to protect them. So it teaches them to get accustomed to different ways of life. So Rasulullah would travel from one place to another, would go out in battles. And he was able to get accustomed to all of this because of his experience as a shepherd. Six, closeness to the creation of Allah. It pulls you out of the artificial world. You are out with the creation of Allah, close to nature. Uh, dear brothers and sisters, the life that we are leading could leave some harmful scars on our hearts and our way of thinking. Living in this concrete world where everything is artificial is against the natural disposition of our creation. We were created from this earth and we are close to nature. We are part of it. And keeping us away from that in this artificial world is keeping us away from contemplating in the creation of Allah. Look at how many references are made in Quran to the creation of Allah. The sun, the moon, stars, heavens, mountains, rivers, oceans, plants. All of this is mentioned in Quran. Why is Allah talking about all of these things? To draw our attention to His creation because His creation is a mirror of His abilities. The creation of Allah is a mirror of the attributes of Allah. If you want to learn about the greatness of Allah, look at His creation. If you want to learn about the wisdom of Allah, look at His creation. If you want to learn about the knowledge of Allah, look at His creation. Basically, if you want to learn about all of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you'll find some reflection of them in the creation of Allah. So when we want to learn about Allah, all what we have to do is look at His creation. That is how we can learn the azamah, the greatness of Allah. A shepherd spends a lot of time close to nature, and that gives them a chance to contemplate. Now, not every shepherd will take advantage of that, but the opportunity is given. And the Anbiya of Allah took advantage of that opportunity. Rasulullah would spend time thinking about the creation of Allah, wondering about it. So these are some lessons, there are some others. Some lessons to be learned from being shepherds. Now what about sheep? How come specifically sheep? How come it didn't say they were shepherds of camels? Shepherds of cows? How come specifically sheep? Now we might say that in the case of Rasulullah being brought up in Arabia, it was not their custom to raise cows. But they did raise camels. And Rasulullah was never in his life a shepherd of camels. Other anbiya who lived in other areas, how come it was specifically sheep? Well, sheep are very weak animals. They are weaker than cows and weaker than, much weaker than camels. 
Therefore, they need more protection. They need more care. And because of this weakness, they could easily fall prey. And when Rasulullah wanted to warn us from shaitan, what did Rasulullah say? He brought in his experience and he said, stick with the jama'ah, be with the group, be close to the group of the Muslims, because the wolf eats from the straying sheep. So Rasulullah learned as a shepherd that if one sheep goes astray, that will be the target of the wolf. The wolf will not hit the flock. The wolf will hit the one that is alone. And we are weak as these sheep when it comes to shaitan. Shaitan can tempt us and attack us. We talked about the weakness of sheep and how similar that is to our weakness. But there's another important lesson to learn. And that is the fact that we are affected by the environment we work in. Our work leaves permanent influence on our personality. Shepherds of sheep are different than shepherds of camels and shepherds of cows. Shepherds of sheep are different than cowboys. And cowboys are different than shepherds of camels. Why? Because they are dealing with a different animal. Sheep tend to be very compassionate, very merciful, and they are weak. So the shepherd learns to become merciful and kind with them because they are very fragile animals. It cannot be too harsh with sheep. So the Anbiya of Allah learn how to be compassionate with their followers. But when it comes to camels, for example, camels tend to be very arrogant animals. And you cannot be soft with a camel, otherwise it will take advantage of you. With a camel, you have to meet that arrogance with strength. You meet the pride with pride. And that makes the shepherds of camels rough. And it makes them very tough. And they could be rude. And that is something that is learned because of the environment that they're living in. And we could talk about the uh, qualities or the characteristics of cows and draw their influence on their shepherds. What you do affects you. Teachers tend to have a different personality than doctors. Doctors have a different personality than engineers. Engineers have different personality than skilled workers. Farmers have different personalities than so-and-so. Your work affects your personality. So, after being a doctor for a few years, you lose your ability to write. You start scribbling. Being a teacher for a very long time, it makes a person such a fatherly figure and is always giving advice. And They might do this with people who are their peers, but because they are used to dealing with children, they start dealing with others in a similar way. Uh, people who stay in the academic field for a very long time tend to be very scholarly, even when they're outside the academic world. The way they speak, the sophistication of their talk, the words that they pick, would be different than somebody who has less education. Uh, mechanics, since they are always dealing with machines, would tend to have a personality that is different than a farmer who is always dealing with plants and is close to nature. Actually, the influence is both ways. Your personality will affect your profession and your profession will affect you. Because people with a certain interest would tend to choose a profession that suits their personality. But then that profession would push them further in those traits. And they would end up developing those. People who stay in the political world for a very long time tend to be more deceptive than others. And it also depends on the political situation that you're working in. I mean, because that's your daily business. That's how you have to be from morning to night. You have to put on, for example, an actor. Somebody who's always acting, putting on a different face, imitating a different personality. That teaches them something, doesn't it? It affects their personality. So our work 
affects us. Therefore, as a Muslim, you need to uh, be careful on what uh, type of uh, work you do. Now, this is not to say that we should not spread in different fields, but keep in mind that uh, you need to choose a work that would suit your personality, and also keep in mind that your work will affect you and influence you. Every type of work out there has something good in it. Try to take advantage of that good and try to eliminate the bad of the field. I mean, I mentioned, for example, being deceptive and lying in politics. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't go into that field because as Muslims, we need to change that image of politics. With the Sahaba, عنهم, almost every Sahabi had that involvement. When you look at a certain time, after Rasulullah passed away, you would rarely find a Sahabi who did not assume office in one place or another. Whether it was a governorship, or whether it was mayorship of a town, or whether it was leading an army. But the political environment they lived in was absolutely different than what we have today. It was an environment of honesty, and straightforwardness, and being accountable and responsible to the people, and serving them. So our work does affect and influence us. Now, enough said about shepherds of sheep. All right, well, Ibn Hajar, side note, uh, just a little bit about him. Ibn Hajar is one of the classical scholars. He wrote the uh, most prominent commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari. Ibn Hajar was a scholar in different fields, hadith, fiqh, aqidah. His commentary on Bukhari is the most famous and the most prominent there are other commentaries on Bukhari, but none of them gained the prominence of Fath al-Bari by Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. Since this hadith is in Bukhari, here I have a quote from Ibn Hajar commenting on this particular hadith. He says, The wisdom behind having the prophets as shepherds before prophethood is that they may become skilled in herding a flock, as they will be responsible for their respective nations in the future. In herding, one attains forbearance and mercy and it uh, imbues patience. For when a shepherd is obliged to gather his flock and herd it from one area to another at once, knowing the traits of all and all the while protecting the flock from predators, he has thus attained the skills necessary to lead the nation and protect it from its enemies, both within and abroad. Thus the prophets learned patience when leading their people and attained an understanding of the different natures of people. They learned to show kindness to the weak and resolve with the dominant. The reasons for which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chosen the sheep for the prophets as opposed to the communal cows or camels is that they are animals that are weak and need extra guidance and attention. Sheep are more difficult to maintain as a flock because of their propensity to go astray and wander away. This is akin to human traits within a society, and it is the divine wisdom of Allah to train these prophets accordingly. The Prophet ﷺ, mentioning of this humble trait shared by all prophets, attests to his humility to Allah. Muhammad al-Abdah, who is a current writer, uh, he also comments on this, and he states, this faith excels through the free thinkers, the courageous, the intelligent, and those who are just. And one cannot encompass it except by distancing themselves from lowly character. It is therefore incumbent upon the Muslims to take on the pure characteristics embodied in humanity's natural disposition. This was the example that was sought by the early Khalifa Umar bin Khattab when he pleaded with his people to toughen up and learn how to ride a steed. He feared for his people the longing for this life and adopting reprehensible characteristics. This does not mean that one must abandon an urban living in order to achieve the stated objectives. But it does mean that one should abandon those things in their life that turns them away from the difficulties of this message. Muhammad al-Abda is actually commenting on Rasulullah living as a shepherd in the desert and also Rasulullah being brought up in the desert in the early years of his life. And then he draws in the saying of Umar al-Khattab when he was a Khalifa. Uh, he could have access to the best that this world could offer. 
but he li still lived a simple life and he was warning the Muslims, telling them that you need to toughen up because this message demands sometimes you going through some difficult situations and you need to be prepared and ready for that. Da'wah is one aspect. Uh, a da'iyah cannot be sincere and wholeheartedly involved in da'wah if they cannot have patience and they are not willing to go into situations that might be difficult. The next important event that happened during the early uh, years of Rasulullah was a pact called Hilf al-Fudul. The story behind this is there was a man who came in from Zabid in Yemen, came to do business in Mecca. His merchandise was taken by Al-As bin Wa'il who promised to pay him back. He's going to sell it and pay him back. Al-As bin Wa'il, after a while, refused to pay this man. He was taken advantage of the fact that he's a foreigner. He's not from Mecca. He told them, frankly, I'm not going to pay you. Al-As expected that this man will just walk away. I mean, he's, he's a foreigner. Who will help him? But the man didn't. The man stood up for his right. And he went to a public place in Mecca. And he started calling the people of Quraysh. And he was telling them, I was oppressed in your land. And are you people who are going to stand up for my rights? Will you allow this oppression to happen in your land? And he said a few emotional words. So some of the clans of Quraysh decided to meet together to bring about an agreement on protecting the rights of the weak in Mecca. We cannot allow this to happen. And among these families of Quraysh was the family of Rasulullah his uncles. Rasulullah at the time was a young boy. But he said, my uncles took me with them to attend this meeting. The meeting was held in the house of Abdullah bin Jad'an. Abdullah bin Jad'an, this was symbolic for them to have it in his house because he was a man who was very generous, very uh, kind to others, and he was a person who would stand up for what is right. So they decided to honor him by having this meeting in his house. So they came together and they made an agreement that we will stand together, all of us present here, we will stand together to protect the rights of the oppressed, of the weak. This happened before prophethood. It was a pact that occurred between non-believers, between mushrikeen. Rasulullah said, I witnessed in the house of Abdullah bin Jad'an a pact made that I wouldn't have exchanged it for the choicest herd. And if it had been suggested after Islam, I would have responded positively to it. Rasulullah is saying that if I'm invited to it today, after the message of Islam has been given to me, I would have still responded to it, even though it was held by non-believers. The important lesson to learn from this is that Muslims should side with what is right no matter what the source is, no matter where that is coming from. Muslims should stand for human rights, should stand for the oppressed, should stand for the needy, no matter what their religious background is. We should stand up for what is good. As a Muslim, we stand up for what is right. And Rasulullah was making this point by stating that I would respond to it today if I was invited. The man was given back what belonged to him after that. An incident happened later on in, in the time of Al-Amawiyin. We're talking about a few decades after Rasulullah passed away. It happened between Al-Husayn bin Ali, the son of Ali bin Abi Talib, and Al-Walid bin Utba bin Abu Sufyan, who was the governor of Medina. Because Al-Walid was the governor of Medina, he was taking advantage of his position, and he has taken away some property that belonged to the son of Ali bin Abi Talib, Al-Husayn. Al-Husayn, what he did is... He went to Al-Walid and told him, you either give me back what belongs to me, otherwise I'm going to walk into the masjid and invite the people to Hilf al-Fudul. I'm going to remind them about Hilf al-Fudul. Now, 
Abdullah bin Zubair was with Al-Walid at that time. Uh, and he said, and I too swear by Allah that if he does invoke it, I'll draw my sword and stand there with him until he gets his justice or we'll all die together. And then some other people heard about that. Al-Maswar bin uh, Makhrama and Abdurrahman bin Uthman bin Ubaid uh, and others, and they gave similar statements. So now it was picking up. And Al-Walid realized that it could become quite dangerous, so he gave back Al-Walid what belongs to him. And the reason why I'm bringing this in, even though it happened way after Sirah, the life of Rasulullah is to show that Muslims would not allow wrong to happen in front of them. I mean, here you have people who are living under a particular leader, Al-Walid ibn Utbah. Uh, nevertheless, they stood up and they protected their brother who was in need, uh, even if they had to give up their lives. So a Muslim should stand up for what is right. Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali, he comments on this pact. He says, This pact shows that no matter how dark life becomes and oppressive dictators become, noble characteristics will still remain in certain people who stand up for justice and bir. Bir is righteousness. Allah has made cooperation in enjoining good and obligation upon Muslims, which he has called to in the verse, and cooperate in virtue and taqwa, and do not help one another in sin and transgression. So for a group of Muslims to enter into a treaty or a contract, such as the aforementioned, is made permissible because it is only a reinforcement for an Islamic obligation. However, this by definition must be dissimilar to the situation of Masjid Dharar. This was a mosque created in Medina to exclude groups of Muslims. He says, where the cooperation turns into a nationalistic or elitist strategy to exclude Muslims. As for the Muslims contracting with the people of other faiths in order to remove oppression or to face an oppressor, this becomes permissible for them if there is in it the welfare of Islam and Muslims in the present and the future. The basis for this is essentially the Prophet ﷺ willingness to answer the call for the pact even after Islam. Please proceed to the next CD.